Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, tensions continue to escalate between Russia and the West over Ukraine. We speak to Canada's former ambassador to Ukraine, who remains in that country tonight, but how effective sanctions will be and what comes next. Ever wonder how to speak to a science denier? Author Lee McIntyre has spent two decades looking into that very topic. He joins us, and it turns out facts alone don't work. But first, we return to Ottawa to check in with a local business owner about life after the blockade. And we speak to Conservative MP Michael Chong about why he opposes the government invoking the Emergency Act. Let's head back to Ottawa, where the Senate began debating the Emergencies Act after a majority of MPs voted to confirm the act late last night in what was a historic vote. There are also bail hearings today for some of the most prominent convoy leaders. But we begin with getting back to normal after a three-week blockade all but shut down the area around Parliament, including Ottawa's largest downtown shopping mall. While things are starting to return, the streets are clear, and the Victoria Barbershop right down the street from Parliament Hill is one of them. Now, we spoke to owner Robin Sege back in late January when this all began, and we wanted to check back in now to see how she was doing. Robin, welcome back to the show. I hope you're well. Hi, Ben. Thank you. So tell me, yes. I, I mean, we saw we saw the trucks get cleared away, but but what's it been like? Uh, are, are you open yet? And if not, why not? Uh, I'm open. Uh, it's, uh, not exactly, uh, it's, it's pretty bleak, uh, right now. It's definitely a big difference from what it was, uh, last week at this time. So, uh, you know, yeah, for sure. It, it's, it's different. It's quiet. Uh, my barbershop is actually, uh, within the parliamentary precinct and it's actually still blockaded. So, because we still have ongoing, uh, uh, protesters trying to uh, disrupt the downtown core. So, so you so you have to actually go through a checkpoint to get to work. I have to go through five checkpoints to get to work. Wow. Yeah. So it's going to be a while then until until you're back to where you hope to be. Absolutely. Uh, my clients, uh, the clients that are around, of course, that work in the in the parliamentary precinct are coming in, uh, which is great. You know, fabulous. I. I I'm so glad to see people again coming in and, and I don't have to worry about who they are or getting a guard to check them before they come in or, you know, it's, it's very relieving for sure. But uh, I think it'll be a while for, before uh, things get back to normal. How are you feeling overall? I mean, I know you don't live there. You, you work there. But I mean, this is your mm -hmm. business. This is your livelihood. Um, how are you feeling about the last three weeks now? I guess you can't just flick a switch, right? No, no, absolutely not. Like, uh, I, I don't, it's, it's been difficult to explain to people, um, unless you were actually there. Like, I know a lot of people came to visit on the weekends when they were having the parties and the hot tubs and the, you know, the bouncy castles and the stage and the big electronic show and the fireworks and the horns and the, you know, a lot of people came in on the weekend and that's what they saw. But people didn't see during the week what it was like, you know, a lot of the times. And I mean, I had to walk through that every single day and uh, not every single day. I mean, there was a few days I was, well, there was quite a few days I was closed. But the last week I was in uh, three and a half days and uh, it was, wow, it was something else. Like, uh, 
the magnitude of, of just how many trucks were there, the size of them, you know, the, the complications with moving them, uh, the people in them, the, the like, it, it, I can't even begin to explain to people what it was like. What was it like? Did you have any interactions with people who were there? Because obviously we heard, you know, very many, very different things. So, you know, clearly people who were there were friendly and, and polite and there were others who were not. Absolutely. I mean, I, I did talk to some people. I had a gentleman and his wife come in and they were willing to put it on a mask and come in and get a, a, a haircut. And um, and I also had a gentleman from northern Quebec who uh, put on a mask and came in for a haircut. And I talked to these people and they were nice people. Absolutely. But I also had uh, other people that yelled at me, harassed me. Uh, I watched reporters walking back and forth, getting jumped on, uh, screamed at. It was, you know, during the week and stuff, it was not the same as it would be on the weekends. I'm speaking with Robin Sege, the owner of the Victoria Barbershop, which is right down from Parliament Hill. We're just talking about what it's like now that most of the trucks and the protesters are gone, but uh, still checkpoints up and uh, certainly very few people wandering that neighborhood these days. Uh, well, absolutely. You, when, uh, you, yeah. Sorry, you can't get through no. anywhere without uh, without uh, a pass for the uh, House of Commons or the, the Senate or the downtown core. Uh, a lot of the people that live in the downtown core uh, don't live in the parliamentary precinct. So it's uh, there is actually no people that live right in the parliamentary precinct. How are you feeling about it overall? Like, what would you? How would you describe your emotions? Are you angry? Are you are you sad? And when, now that you sort of think about having to go back to work and try and see if you can't make up for the for the time and the money lost and so forth. Uh, I the emotions are very mixed. Uh, I'm both happy, of course, that everything's kind of gone back to normal. And I, I thank you, you know, the, to all of the people that came together to make Ottawa boring again. I'm happy about that uh, because, you know, Ottawa's <laughs> yeah, a pretty it's a good uh, line. Yeah. It is, yeah. you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's happy. We're happy to see Ottawa boring again. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it's kind of like an aftermath. We all, it's almost like a PTSD, like you're not sure what to do or what to say or where to go or, you know, what's open, what's not, what's safe, what isn't like. And of course, we still have the imminent threat where we have, you know, various groups of these um, protesters that still exist and and are still uh, trying to come into the city. And we even had an incident at the Rideau Centre again today, so. Right. And it's the dead of winter, of course, which always makes Ottawa a little bit less. I mean, I lived there for quite a while. So I remember the dead of winter is also already a bit of a desolate place, right? At, uh, yeah, it's very uh, bleak, though. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to ask you last question was was just in terms of just your business, um, you know, how, how, how are you doing and how will you be able, to, are you going to be able to get back on your feet, given that you've probably lost a fair amount in the last month of the Brit? Uh, I should be able to get back on my feet. I mean, the government did announce, you know, a little program for us. So uh, the businesses that are affected directly by this. So we'll see, you know, where that's going to go. And of course, there's, uh, I'm just going to work. I mean, that's what I do. I I cut hair and that's, you know, as long as people keep coming in. And of course, there's a lot more clients now because I've I've gotten a little bit of exposure in the last uh, few weeks. Yeah. So I have a lot of people that are willing and, and, you know, wanting to come in and support me. And 
So of course, uh, it's it's going to be good. I think I think I shouldn't have too many problems getting myself back on track. Well, I certainly hope so. Robin Sege, owner of the Victoria Barbershop. If any of you are in Ottawa, make sure. I, I'm sure now you don't want too many. You don't want to have too many clients, right? But uh, oh no, Ottawa, they can all come. <laughs> I'm you know I'm really happy. I'm more than happy to welcome new clients all the time. So all right. Well, thanks so much for giving us. Thanks so much for giving us an update. Best of luck getting back on your feet with, you know, best of luck in the near future. And uh, maybe we'll speak to you again in the next little while. See how you're doing. Okay, great. Thanks, Ben. Have a great night. Well, Canada has announced plans to deploy hundreds of additional troops to Eastern Europe and impose new sanctions against Russia as Western democracies rush to respond to the deployment of Russian forces into Ukraine, as Vladimir Putin announced yesterday. Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland says this is just the beginning of Canada's punishment of Russia if Russia persists. So with war inching ever closer to its doorstep, what is the mood like in Ukraine now? Roman Washtak is Ukraine's business ombudsman and Canada's former ambassador to Ukraine, and he joins me now. Welcome to the show. Uh, you're very welcome. I mean, this has been a fairly astounding 36 hours, but just in your own words, how did you interpret the events of, uh, first of all, President Putin's speech and just the consequences of that? Well, I think uh, one of the unfortunate things we've all come to realize is that basically you have to take him at face value. He started uh, this sort of uh, revanchist, uh, I'm going to rebuild an empire thing, first with talk back in 2007, then Georgia, then Ukraine 2014. And then he gave us that five or 6,000 word article last summer. And what we discovered last night was that He's serious about it. It's not just some PR thing that some aides wrote for him. He's all in. What does that mean on the ground for those who aren't entirely familiar with the geography of Ukraine and what exactly Vladimir Putin has said he's going to do? Uh, what does that mean for, for Ukraine? Okay. Well, uh, it, it, Ukraine is, by European standards, a big country. So it's about 13, 1400 kilometers from east to west. Uh, in Canadian terms, think of it as kind of the size of Southern Ontario and then another little bit and a bit more. Right. Um, so it's not like a Belgium or a, you know other. Countries. So uh, it's had a conflict going on in its eastern end, uh, Donetsk, Luhansk Oblast, but that's really concerned about three or 4% of the country. So the rest of the country has largely lived a reasonably normal life. Um, Sometimes people, you know, soldiers who were at the front were saying, you know, people back home don't understand what's going on. They're too insulated from it. Uh, what I think is happening now is that with 150,000 uh, troops plus highly uh, high-tech weaponry uh, all around Ukraine, including its northern neighbor Belarus, uh, this is not going to be just a couple of jabs here or there. He's uh, gearing up for what could be very high-end missile, aerial, joint forces, naval landing, you name it, kind of assault on Ukraine. Given that you're there, what is the mood right now and how much has it changed in the past week or so? I think it's gone from Ukrainians being a bit like people in other countries going, yeah, sure, he can't be serious about this, to going, oh my God. Yes, he probably is. 
Um, now, the other thing is that Ukrainians are a very resilient bunch of people. They've lived through the collapse of the Soviet Union, which they helped bring about by voting for independence. Uh, they've gone through various economic crises. They've gone through the conflict at, at a fairly low level in 2013-14 with the revolution. Uh, I feel they've seen it all. But now as they look around and realize that we're talking a whole different level of potential conflict, uh, they're you know, taking a little gulp as they look. What would be, I mean, I, I, my interpretation of Vladimir Putin's speech yesterday was essentially questioning Ukraine's very right to exist as a sovereign nation in, in some in many ways. Basically, uh, yeah. And, and, and they're being quite consistent. Uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov today said Ukraine has no right to sovereignty because its government doesn't control the entire territory. So it's basically, uh, we, we, we get to push it around what, what, whatever way we want. This is a violation of, of international law. Which is law. not the way we usually talk. No, no. This is a violation of international law, clearly. You're there. You, you were a, you've been a diplomat there. You understand how this all works. Is there a way to negotiate this uh, uh, away from conflict? Right. I think it's going to be really difficult. Uh, French President Macron tried this. He tried it a couple of nights ago. Uh, he, I think, spent two hours on the phone with Putin trying to also, and, and people were wondering, is this guy freelancing? But no, he was uh, also calling on behalf of President Biden to set up a meeting. Uh, but basically, he was blown off. Um, and uh, the next day, the Russians said, uh, you know, what summit? We, we, we don't really care about a summit. Uh, and... Uh, Essentially, President Macron is kind of like a glorified errand boy, and we don't care anymore. Uh, so that's, uh, there's a kind of uh, throwing over the table aspect to this that makes it all very unpredictable. And unlike most things that we've seen in the past, well, half century. I mean, you... What has been the reaction so far of, of President Zelensky, of, of the Ukrainian government, to this obvious, yeah. almost existential threat now to, to the country? Well, they've tried to be as sanguine about it as possible. Uh, some people may have thought even, maybe even a bit too sanguine, uh, kind of a folks, let's not panic. Uh, they had a lot of worries that just the mere talk about conflict would cause investors to bail, would cause uh, run on banks, that sort of thing, uh, pressure on the currency. Uh, fortunately, I think they've gotten money now from countries like Canada, the US, France, uh, probably money coming from the IMF and, and the World Bank that'll help buffer that. Um, President Zelensky's speech at the Munich Security Conference was, was I think, very hard hitting. Uh, also pointing out that uh, it's all very words like uh, we stand with you except if you're not showing up it doesn't sound like standing with ukraine uh, you know thanks for sending uh, some stuff but um essentially in this fight uh ukraine is largely alone vis-a-vis -a, -vis a large much larger nuclear armed neighbor and that's a very uncomfortable position to be in
Yes, uh, and and that was I was wondering what you made of the saying of sort of the announcements so far uh, that we've seen from Germany about Nord Stream Two, uh, which is a gas pipeline that's already built, ready to go. The Germans today have told the Russians they're going to delay it or at least stop it for now. Uh, do you feel like the response has been robust enough so far? I think it is getting certainly more robust, and uh, I, I see that the. Europeans are about to sanction all the members of the Duma and ban them from traveling. And uh, now, some of these things that uh, we're planning to do may not be as effective as Western c- countries hope because because President Putin has been preparing for this. He's been creating a kind of fortress Russia mentality. So even though yes, it's true that Russia's oligarchs own stuff all over the place, and uh, you know many members of the Russian elite have their kids at Western universities, private schools, apartments on the Côte d'Azur in France or something like that. Uh, But he's been asking them to pull them back. And so the kind of hit uh, that they'll they'll take will be partly buffered by this fortress Russia preparations. He's also been accumulating... uh, foreign reserves. So they've, they've got like about $600 billion in reserves. And ironically, uh, every time the threat of conflict is increased, oil prices go up. And of course, that is Russia's main source of income. Uh, so ratcheting up conflict actually kind of flows more money into his coffers. Uh, so Energy-related sanctions on the part of Western countries would be the most effective way of breaking that. I'm speaking with Roman Wastruck, Ukraine's business ombudsman and Canada's former ambassador to Ukraine. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what Canada's been doing, how it's viewed in, in Kyiv as, as whether or not it's sufficient, and what could be done now by Canada to send a clear message to Russia about this latest escalation. We'll be right back. I'm back with Roman Wastruck, Ukraine's business ombudsman and Canada's former ambassador to Ukraine. Clearly, you watch what the Canadian government does in this space very closely. Um, I was speaking with Michael Borsicu last week, and he he was telling me that the perception of Canada's uh, recent um, commitments to Ukraine was seen as somehow being a bit lacking. And I'm wondering whether you agree with that. Uh, I think since the delivery of a globe master full of uh, lethal weaponry, uh, it's uh, looking up for Canada <laughs> in Ukraine. Uh, and I think. Possibly even more importantly, Canada has been very active and our finance minister and deputy prime minister has been very active on this front in providing this kind of financial buffer uh, so that Putin basically can't collapse Ukraine economically before the first tank or the uh, uh, revs or the first missile flies. Uh, So, you know, the uh, there's been a a half a billion dollar uh, loan to Ukraine. Uh, and uh, certainly very active lobbying with the international financial institutions to to provide support as well. So, so certainly, uh, I think uh, right now uh, Canada is in good stead with uh, with Ukrainians. Uh, the Canadian embassy staff are in Lviv, Western Ukraine, as am I. Uh, unlike their American or Australian counterparts, they have not uh, taken to either leaving the country or overnighting outside the country. Uh, so I think they're, uh, they're a presence and a reassuring presence to Ukrainians. Certainly, there'll be a lot of pressure uh 
back home with the diaspora to try and at least come out and, and, and be as strong as possible. Is Canada still have a seat at the table here? I mean, honestly, one of the things that's come out of late is criticism of us not reaching out to the Russians enough. I remember being in Moscow when we were essentially completely cut off from the from the Kremlin. There was no reaching out. It, it, they didn't wouldn't return our phone calls. Uh, where does Canada sit as far as being able to broker any kind of uh, any kind of settlement here? I think we're not in the brokerage business right now. And again, even those who have been mediators for years uh, in the so-called Minsk process, uh, Germany and France, they've all been spurned uh, as well. So I think there isn't a whole lot of scope here for suddenly magically mediating this. Uh, Where I think we do count is as a country that commands one of the NATO uh, enhanced forward presence battalions in Latvia. Uh, And so when you see consultations happening at NATO, uh, you'll see that Canada is one of the core group countries uh, that meets to discuss what's happening on the eastern flank of NATO. Uh, So I I think uh, we're not in the brokerage business right now, but we are in the uh, deter and show some some strength uh, business. Uh, you know, Canadians often talk about where we're not. You know, are, are we doing enough peacekeeping? Are we doing that? But we've been more than pulling our weight in terms of both training the Ukrainian forces, where we have the biggest presence on the ground. It's now naturally very much thinned out. Uh, but also in uh, in having uh, 500 Canadians, uh, you know, uh, in Latvia. What would be, when you look at how things sit today, what would be the best case scenario for Ukraine uh, in the next right. week or so? The best case would be uh, Putin deciding to make the point by emphasizing his occupation of these uh, so-called two republics and arming them to the hilt, but not moving beyond that eastern enclave. Um the uh, maybe second least bad option would be, uh, you know, sort of trying to fill in some gaps in the territory, the territory of the Oblast in the East. And of course, that's also an invasion. That's also absolutely uh, unacceptable in, in terms of international law and in terms of the humanitarian impact it would have. But it's not the same as letting fly a full bore attack on the whole country or most of the country. Uh, the implications there, I mean, there, there are a couple of implications. One is a major humanitarian implication from full-scale attack, which is even the conflict in 2014 generated about 2 million internally displaced people. So you can imagine that the Western part of Ukraine and neighboring EU countries will have to deal with millions of displaced, displaced people if the Russians go for the full uh, the sort of full-scale attack. And Ukraine is one of the world's top four, five food producers. You disrupt Ukrainian grain, there's people going to be going hungry in places like North Africa, East Africa, parts of Asia. So uh, there are implications for all of this way beyond uh, the geography of Ukraine. I I was in Mariupol in 2014. I remember the number of people leaving at the time. I can't imagine what it would be like now, but therein lies some of the issues that there is a possibility here that the Russians would then advance into, into areas that are now technically controlled by the government of Ukraine, that were Ukrainians, uh, I mean, they're all Ukrainians, but were Ukrainians who are not living under 
sort of militia separatist militia rule yeah. are now living and so we would see them I, is that that's the fear that there would be a movement on those areas that's that's the fear and i think there's also something that uh the uh, diplomatic editor of bbc newsnight has pointed out and we'll see if he's if he's right in looking at this uh he apart from putin's resentment about ukraine's very existence he's also very resentful about nato and he's resentful about the way NATO operated in the Yugoslavia-Kosovo campaign of 1999. So uh, what he's suggested is that uh, sort of pinpoint bombing might occur all across the country uh, with the argument that, well, you guys did it to Yugoslavia uh, to prevent genocide of the Kosovo Albanians, and we have declared a genocide of uh, Russians and Russian speakers in uh the Donbass region, uh, even though there's zero evidence for it. And so we get to do whatever you did. Uh, so it's kind of like uh, social media trolling on a massive and murderous scale. Uh, so here we're kind of almost getting into movie super villain kind of uh, behavior. So, but, but, but we'll see. How long will you, I mean, I know that, the, the Canadian um, the Foreign Affairs Department continues to, to ask Canadians there to leave. Uh, how long will you stay? And what what are you looking? What are you? I mean, I know this is, a, but how long will yes. you stay? And what's and, and how much have things changed even just for you in the last little while? Well, so um, I don't know. Is is my mother listening? Uh, is my wife listening? <laughs> um, we'll see. How, how how much should I tell you here? Uh, but uh, my you know I uh, have about a week and a bit ago uh, left the capital uh, sensing that it might be a target uh, because people like President Biden have said that it might be a target and I feel that he's a fairly well-briefed individual uh, here in the West uh, I think as long as it's physically safe uh, I am uh, looking to, to stay as long as I can in part because uh, you know, having come out of retirement uh I've been chosen to head up a Ukrainian organization that works to improve the business climate and uh, and to, to challenge and correct uh, basically uh, abusive behavior by government agencies vis-a-vis -vis business. Uh, I have a staff of 32 Ukrainian citizens and I feel a kind of uh, general duty of care uh, to them and to the fact that I had an organization that is uh, that's serving this country. Uh, so hightailing it out at the first whiff of problems is probably not the right thing to do. Um, I think I, I told my wife when I left to take on the task, I won't be on the first flight out and I hope, and I, and I hope not to be on the last helicopter out. Uh, so somewhere in between there. Roman I'm hoping that, the, that the Ukrainian armed forces will, uh, uh, will, will, uh, put up a stiff defense and prevent any helicopter scenes from happening. Well, Wes Chuck, thank you so much for your time tonight. Stay safe. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again. Uh, so do I. Yeah. A lot of stories the past few years about families and friendships torn apart by disagreements over science, the science behind vaccines or climate change or GMOs, you name it. Oftentimes, people will hold on to mistaken beliefs through thick and thin, and it turns out that's because it isn't really about facts. It's about identity and trust. And the way to find common ground, unsurprisingly, 
is to talk it over. Joining me now is one of the foremost experts on this topic. Lee McIntyre is a philosopher of science and author of the very fine book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This is a fascinating subject, only because of how topical it is now, but I gather it's been topical for a very long time. But tell me a bit about, about what you what, sort of what drove you to try to explore this further. Uh, I've been interested in science denial for 20 years, longer. Back when I was a kid, it just it never occurred to me why people would doubt what scientists said. I mean, that scientists doubt what one another say all the time that, you know, but, but they're scientists and they, you know, they try to make it better, but why would someone think that scientists were, were biased or were lying to them? I was scandalized by the, uh, the Galileo affair. When I was a kid, I remember reading about that in the encyclopedia and just thinking, wow, it's a great thing. I live in an era where that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> and um, the, the reason that, I, you know, I just got so fascinated with science denial, finally, is because it started to grow. I mean, it, it was a kind of a boutique interest uh, originally. Uh, for me, I guess I didn't, you know, starting out my career, I didn't know much about it. But then it started to not just be the fringe, it started to really become quite a bit more mainstream. And that's when I, and I've been writing a little bits about it in, in other books, but this most recent book of mine is uh, completely devoted to how to talk to a science denier, because I think that we do have to speak to them. I think that the idea that people have had in the past has been just ignore them and they'll go away, or it's no use speaking to them. You're never going to change their mind. And I think that both of those things are dangerous. We do have to talk to them. And I think that we can change their mind. I was going to say, because you found in the book that that is in fact not always easy to change someone's no. mind, but it's certainly not incorrect. It can be done. It can be done. And I think that the important thing is by trying, we're at least, you know, uh, taking a crack at it. We're, we're fighting the good fight. And the worst that will come of it is that we've built some trust, which over time might eventually get someone to uh, change their mind. The important thing going into these conversations is really to remember the goal is not to change their mind. The goal is to get them to listen. And if you think of it that way, then you've got the right attitude, the right approach about it. Because a lot of people just, again, have the mistaken view that if you just share the facts, someone should change their mind. But that doesn't usually work with a science denier. And so you have to figure out what really makes them tick. Why do they believe this thing? And it's not simply because they have doubts or even because they've been lied to. It's because they distrust the people who are on the other side. And when you accept that that's what it's about, then it just makes sense that conversation is the way to try to get past it. And I think you put it exactly right. It doesn't always work. And it's, in fact, very hard to do. But it's worth doing. And sometimes it really does work. I know you referred to this as the information deficit model, right? This is, yes. if, if you think someone is arguing with you because they just don't understand what the facts are, giving them That's the right. facts doesn't always, doesn't always help. What are some of, I mean, I think the, obviously the first example that comes to mind of late is, is vaccinations, is COVID and, and COVID vaccinations. Using that as sort of an example, where do you see both the, where do you see people's beliefs being built and then cemented around um, evidence, which is at best very dubious. 
I don't think it starts with evidence. I think it starts with fear. People, uh, vaccines are especially fraught. I mean, think about not just taking a vaccine for yourself, but giving a vaccine to your kid. And you want to do the right thing. And, you know, people are, are afraid. And then they begin to hear misinformation, disinformation. They begin to hear people that they trust, people in their circle who have doubts And then they think, well, I'll just start to investigate for myself. And there's an entire industry out there waiting for that, waiting for you to come looking for an honest take. And they don't have an honest take. Um, And in some cases, folks get radicalized and they become anti-vaxxers in a case like that. But, you know, I always remind people that, you know, polarization happens on both sides. It's you know, sometimes it happened to the allies of science that they just they think that the anti-vaxxers are just unintelligent people or the, the worst is when they think, well, you know, they, they don't care. Anti-vaxxers love their kids, too. They're just getting bad information from unreliable sources. And the job should be to be the one person on the other side that they feel like they can really talk to because you listen to them. And it's the listening that is what converts people. You can't change somebody's mind against their will, but you can create a trusting relationship where when they're ready to hear the facts, you're the person that they'll talk to. Because you've mentioned that this is often a question of not misinformation, which you describe as something that's a mistake, but disinformation, which is something that is done. Uh, How does that work? it's, It's impossible to fathom, isn't it? Who in their right mind would make up, intentionally lie about vaccines or intentionally lie about something so so high stakes? And yet it's true. Um, a, a shocking amount of the disinformation about COVID, uh, about masking, about uh, the uh, Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, you know, all of these things. Uh, it comes from foreign t- foreign intelligence. We are we are right now in an information war with Russia. We're not in a shooting war, but we're in an information war, in which they're trying to um, undermine American institutions. Um, I said there. I know you're you're Canadian, but um, you know American institutions, democracy, uh, intelligence services, education, science are under assault. And so it's important to uh, to remember that. And then going into it with that perspective, then it can make you a little bit more savvy to where some of this stuff comes from. Nobody wakes up one day and wonders, you know, I wonder if there are microchips in that vaccine. I wonder if there's biometric tracking data. Nobody just thought that up. That was a story that was invented uh, by the GRU. And then pumped out in English language prop their English language propaganda arm, the Oriental Review, which was the story was a lie, but at the bottom it said share on Facebook, share on Twitter, and people did. And once it gets out there and it feeds that fear that people have and that skepticism and distrust, um, it led the the poll I saw the CBS poll was that. A month after that story came out, in the story, the story came out in April 2020. By May 2020, 44% of Republican voters believed it to be true. 
Now that's that's a shocking, shocking uh, uh, uptake of a propaganda story. Um, but you know, quite a bit of um, anti-vax uh, happens that way. It also happens from people who have alternative cures, uh, allegedly, and they make money on this. Uh, some of it's misinformation. Some of people are sharing things that they think are true, but they're really not. But most of even that has its roots in disinformation. I, I've said it in my, uh, my book, um, science denial isn't a mistake, it's a lie. And it's important to remember that. Even if it's misinformation, the provenance is usually a lie. And you mentioned something interesting there, too, about the fact that it was Republican voters who, who had sort of bought into this idea. And that was the idea of, of sort of a certain sense of belonging, of identity, is so yes. important to, yes. to denial. Because it isn't about the facts, it's about who you are. And then changing how someone is, is much more difficult than changing their yeah. mind about whether, whether it's going to rain tomorrow or not, for instance. That, that, that's right. I, I mean... I often say it couldn't be about the facts. How could it be? <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it's based on something else. And if you think about, I mean, there are 50 years or more of social psychology experiments which show that uh, belief is social. We want to believe. We're wired to believe what the other people around us believe. Um, you know, it, that's probably selected for in the evolutionary environment. Our community is important. Our friends and family are important. Um, and especially when we get reinforced in what we already sort of want to believe by the other people in our community, that's uh, that's a, a big factor as well. So, yes, it is identity. And sometimes pre-existing fault lines can be exploited by, you know, for political purposes or religious purposes, whatever, you know, you have that you want polarization, it's usually, you know, you can use it to exploit an existing fault line and create an us versus them. Uh, vaccines used to be fairly, anti-vax used to be fairly evenly split between uh, liberals and conservatives. Now, they were anti-vax maybe for different reasons, but you found quite a number of a percentage of the anti-vaxxers were liberal Democrats. Uh, no more. Um, it's there are some still there. But that issue has become politicized. Why? Because it was in someone's interest to politicize it. I'm speaking with Lee McIntyre, philosopher of science and author of How to Talk to a Science Denier. After this, how do you talk to a science denier in a way that may at least encourage them to think about what they believe? Um, it's not about the facts, oddly enough. More about that after this. I'm back with Lee McIntyre, philosopher of science and author of How to Talk to a Science Denier. One of the things that I found most enlightening about the book was that we're so used to trying to argue facts with facts, or, or sort of, but I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm not a climatologist. I'm not a vaccine expert. You don't have to be, apparently, to be able to have a, a legitimate and interesting conversation with someone about their beliefs and why they believe in them. And how is that? most fascinating things to me as a philosopher, as somebody who thinks about reasoning, that what a gift, what an opportunity to discover based on good empirical work that you were just as likely to be able to convince somebody by talking about how they're reasoning as about talking about the content of their reasoning. This goes back to a study in Nature Human Behavior in the summer of 2019 by Cornelia Bache and Philip Schmidt. 
And they found that there was something called contrast, which is just what you think. If you're a climatologist and you want to talk somebody out of their false beliefs about climate change, you know, go nuts. You know the facts. Still might not work. What they found was just as effective, though, is if you're a layperson and say you don't know all those, uh, you know, you're not an expert on the facts, then you can have a conversation with them about why they believe what they believe. So don't get into a, a match of fact against fact. Say things like, well, why believe that? Or, but wait a minute, you are, seem like somebody who's very skeptical but you completely trusted this one source. Why do you think that person's not lying to you? You know, so it, it was just getting them to expand, it is listening to why they believe what they believe. Sometimes they'll tell you what you need to know in order to, to try to convince them. And then, of course, my all-time favorite question, which I stole from Karl Popper, famous philosopher of science, is what evidence, if I had it, would convince you to change your mind. Because if they can't answer that, then there's no pretense. They're not a scientist. They're not thinking about it in the right way because any scientist should be able to answer that question. But a denier will often balk. I, I use that question to great effect against science deniers who go, uh, well, well, give me proof. And then I can say, well, science isn't about proof. I thought you said you understood how science worked. It's about likelihood and probability given the evidence, but you're not sharing with me what evidence could convince you. I don't know what to say. Because you've mentioned that there are, for every form of denial, whether it be flat earthers or people who believe in, or, you know, or, you know, people who oppose climate change, any number of things that there are essentially some very similar tropes that they that they rely mm -hmm. on and 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 the people rely on uh, what are those uh, this was uh, some terrific work that has been uh, uh, uh was originally due to the hoofnagel brothers mark and chris but it's been popularized by uh lewandowski john cook some uh, cognitive scientists who, who have really i mean done more than popularize it they've really developed it into an entire program there are five steps every science denier about evolution climate change, anti-vax, anything, reasons in this way. First, they cherry pick evidence. Second, they believe in conspiracy theories. Third, they engage in illogical reasoning. Uh, fourth, they rely on fake experts and tend to denigrate real experts. And fifth, they think that science has to be perfect in order to be credible. And it's sometimes a little bit of a mix and match to figure out when they're doing that. I mean, I carry that rubric around in my head. And when someone start, when someone says to me, you know, I really love what you said about climate change. And I, you know, and I'm, and I'm convinced by what you say about vaccines. I mean, you really gave it to them. That's great. But boy, did you screw up about GMOs? And then I'll say, oh, really? Well, why do you think that GMOs are dangerous? And then they start to talk and I go, ah, conspiracy theory. Oh, there's some cherry-picked evidence. Wait a minute, that's illogical. You can just go through the list in your head and, and figure it out. Um, so it, it's a very handy thing. And part of um, technique rebuttal, by the way, that Bates and Schmidt talked about, to have that five brick in your head, because that's what's going to enable you to question not just what they believe, but why they believe it. Lee McIntyre, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me.